Welcome to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path, and I'm your host, Mike Allen. Some of the most important developments that have facilitated our ability to fly, or the aerospace industry, have been invented, developed, and manufactured right here in Connecticut. From the very first helicopter at Sikorsky Aircraft, to simply the world's best jet engines made by Pratt & Whitney in East Hartford, and some would even argue the first powered flight even before the Wright brothers by Gustav Whitehead. Well, nobody knows more about Connecticut's contributions to the field of aerospace quite as well as Nick Hurley. He's the curator of the New England Air Museum in Windsor Locks, one of Connecticut's standout jewels. And he's our guest for this episode. And now, aerospace is Connecticut's middle name. I'm Kathy Hermes with Connecticut Explored Magazine. In print and in our podcast, Grading the Nutmeg, we bring you fresh, fascinating, and inspiring stories of the people and places in Connecticut. If you're a regular listener to Amazing Tales, we know you'll love our podcast. Interviews with authors, historians, and changemakers co-hosted by the State Historian Emeritus and the publishers of Connecticut Explored. Available wherever you get your podcasts and at ctexplored.org. Check it out. Let's face it, when you think of Connecticut, the first thing that pops into your head, well, it's not visions of jet engines, helicopters, sophisticated electronics to guide air traffic, and other aerospace components, but Connecticut has been an unbelievably critical contributor to the aerospace industry, both military and civilian, over the past 125 years now. When I talk to people about how much money Connecticut makes off the military-industrial complex, they're shocked to hear the figure. It's 8% of the GDP, which is a huge amount. If you look at the average state, it's less than 3%. But Connecticut rakes in $15 billion a year from the Pentagon. That puts it number seven of the 50 states in terms of the amount of money coming from the defense industry annually. Now, to be fair, part of that money, and a good part of it, has nothing to do with aerospace. It's General Dynamics Electric Boat Shipyard in Groton, which is one of only two sites in the U.S. where nuclear-powered subs are built. But on the aerospace side of the equation, it is very, very significant. We have helicopters built by Lockheed Martin, formerly Sikorsky Aircraft in Stratford, and jet engines pouring out of Pratt & Whitney in East Hartford. And there are literally hundreds and hundreds of other firms that support the aerospace sector and some of the big names like Common Helicopters, Raytheon, which acquired United Technologies, Northrop Grumman, Collins Aerospace, many, many more. And I don't mean to offend anybody by leaving them out. Why does Connecticut have this concentration of aerospace companies? Well, it's a question that's been pondered by a gentleman named Nick Hurley. He's a historian by academic training, and he's also the curator of the New England Air Museum in Windsor Locks. It's one of the premier museums for aircraft in this country. You always take it back to why are they here? And I'm just interested to, to get your thoughts on that. Why are all those companies here? New England was the first region to be really heavily settled. And you saw this gradual shift from farming to survive towards people that were entering the manufacturing realm because number one, there was less space available for these large farms in New England. Number two, you had the American West and Midwest starting to really be explored and settled. Everything started in New England, so it's a natural sort of byproduct that industry is going to start up in New England as well. The infrastructure was in place to a certain extent 
with that really solid foundation, you have folks like Frederick Rentschler who take an interest in wanting to produce a, a reliable aircraft engine. He uses his social network to network with certain businessmen out in Ohio. That eventually leads him here to Hartford, Connecticut. He partners with Pratt & Whitney Machine Tool and forms the Pratt & Whitney Aircraft Company. That's the thread that carries us through to the development of a lot of these aviation companies, Sikorsky, Hamilton Standard, Pratt & Whitney, and a lot of these industries were based in Connecticut because that original seed of Pratt & Whitney being started in East Hartford, building a manufacturing facility, it's almost this gravitational pull. Once they're established, it makes a lot of practical sense to have your subsidiaries kind of in one area. From there, things just really continue to develop. Connecticut, I think, is also somewhat unique in the fact that it has, you know, it doesn't have a Boeing type of facility where it's producing airplanes per se, but it does have Sikorsky, where they actually make helicopters in uh, Stratford on the uh, banks of the Housatonic River. And of course, they have all these engines being drummed out at Pratt & Whitney in East Hartford. And I don't mean to offend anybody else. I'm, there's so much that goes on in this state. But let's just talk about those two for a second and how important they are to the aerospace industry. Oh, absolutely. They have been important really since their inception. And I think the common thread you see in both of those companies is leadership that is willing to innovate and be flexible and adapt to the changing times. So if you look at Pratt & Whitney, for example, Frederick Rentschler was very sort of forward thinking. You know, he came out of his military service in World War I and was convinced that future aircraft were going to need a more reliable and a lighter aircraft engine. Not everybody thought the same as he did, but he was able to leverage his business contacts to produce, you know, what would become the R-1340 Wasp in 1926. That launched a whole line of incredibly successful aircraft engines, a very, very large number of the aircraft that you would see were powered by Pratt & Whitney engines. Just like Pratt & Whitney engines powered a lot of the combat aircraft of World War II, you see a lot of Pratt & Whitney engines still today even that are powering civilian airliners. Sikorsky did not start out working on helicopters. He designed a great number of multi-engine seaplanes. But when those really didn't pan out, he did really go heavily into uh, helicopter production. You know, the first successful helicopter flown in the United States by getting his foot in the door very, very early and sort of laying the groundwork for what a successful production helicopter looks like. They were able to sort of maintain that firm grip on helicopter production. And if you look back through history and, and up through the present day, many of the other helicopters that you've seen in the last, you know, 60 to 75 years, they carry the name Sikorsky. I want to talk about a guy named Gustav Whitehead. And, you know, when you talk about the history of aviation in Connecticut, this name keeps popping up. And there's this uh, legendary newspaper article from August of 1901, where the reporter claimed to be an eyewitness to Whitehead uh, flying. And there's, it's taken on sort of a culture all to itself of this um, this fan base who says actually Whitehead was the first one to power flight and that he did this right outside Bridgeport in 1901. 
I always look at the Smithsonian, which has done quite a investigative look at it and said, actually, they're giving that title to the Wright brothers and not to Whitehead. You know, with the Air Museum, how does this uh, sort of square out since you are based in Connecticut? There are countless people that claim to have flown before the Wright brothers in December 1903. I think Whitehead is such a popular topic because of its very local connection. This was a Connecticut resident who claimed to have done this in Connecticut in 1901, you know, a full two years before the Wright brothers. I think that's why it comes up, you know, why Whitehead in particular comes up so frequently, you know, in you know, our neck of the woods. The way the museum has really approached this is, regardless of the first flight claims, he was a tireless innovator, inventor. Some of his designs were somewhat successful. Some were complete failures. The fact that he was so tireless in his efforts to improve the sort of industry and the art of aviation, that alone earns him a place as an aviation pioneer. In terms of the first flight claims, really what we look at here is hard, verifiable evidence. The Wright brothers did something very important when they made their flight attempts. They had witnesses, but they also had the means to photograph and record what they were doing. That's just something that doesn't exist for the Whitehead claims. There's a purported photograph that has been debunked several times that claimed to show Whitehead in flight. But beyond that, there has not been any discovered photographic or video evidence that shows any Whitehead aircraft in flight. And so in the absence of that, you really fall back on, okay, well, is this a verified claim? And the evidence just is not there. Now let's take a stroll a little bit further back in time, and you're a historian, so you'll appreciate this. We'll go back to the 1800s for a second. At that point in time, a gentleman named Silas Brooks was active uh, in Connecticut, in the Midwest, a lot of different places, kind of a showman. In fact, had worked with P.T. Barnum for a while, and he got involved in hot air ballooning almost by mistake. He was filling in one day for a guy who got ill at one of his shows and went on to make, I guess, uh, 185 or 190 ascensions, they call them. And you have a just a fascinating uh, artifacts at the museum, which is the actual gondola of his hot air balloon on display at the museum. Tell me what you know about the Silas Brooks story, because that's, if I'm got my facts straight, isn't that the oldest surviving aeronautical artifact in the United States? The claim that we make is that in terms of surviving aircraft, it is the oldest surviving aircraft in the United States. Some may debate the definition of aircraft, which you know may or may not change that claim. But by a certain definition of aircraft, we consider this to be the oldest surviving aircraft in the United States. It dates to the 1870s. We're not sure exactly when, but it has been on display for, for many, many years now. And obviously, you know, one of the centerpieces of our collection. Silas Brooks was a very interesting person, uh, as you kind of noted already. The reason he has a place in our museum is because he is a Connecticut native and he's born in Plymouth. You know, although his exploits took him really all around the country, he did eventually find his way back to Connecticut and ended his life here. He is, again, another very, you know, famous name in terms of early aviation pioneers. Hot air ballooning was not for the faint of heart, especially back in that time period when 
technology was far less advanced. Balloons were far less reliable. It took a certain kind of person to want to undertake that. And yes, you know, your story about, you know, he was uh, filling in for someone who was ill, made his first ascension. And from all accounts, that's really when he got hooked and things sort of took off from there. Another really sort of famous aspect of his life is his brush with Samuel Colt. He approached Colt in Hartford and basically pitched doing a, an ascension. And then, you know, again, his career took him all around the Midwest and eventually led him back here. But the sad part about Silas Brooks, which I don't think gets as much mention, once he sort of came back here, he sort of faded into obscurity. He stopped ballooning. His last ascension in 1894 was actually in Hartford at Bushnell Park. He was about 70 years old, and it just barely got off the ground. Eventually, it did get high enough. It sort of floated around, caught up in the branches of a tree, landed on the roof of a home nearby, and he, he had to be cut loose. So it was a very sort of sad ending to a career that was otherwise really interesting and, and very successful. But, you know, as far as we can tell in the historical record, this ascension in 1894 was his last. Wow. You talk about uh, sad flying stories, and of course, uh, the name Amelia Earhart comes to mind. You have what I think is a fascinating exhibit, which is the exact plane, not obviously, you know, they haven't found the plane she went down in, but it's an exact replica of the plane that she was flying, and it's a lot bigger than I thought it was. But tell me that whole side of the story. Yes. So our Lockheed Electra is just a few serial numbers away from Amelia Earhart's aircraft. And obviously hers was pretty, you know, significantly modified for her, you know, around the world flight. But yes, uh, the base model was a Lockheed Electra, just like we have here. You know, what really strikes me about that aircraft, I picture trying to fly across the Pacific in this aircraft. And, it, and it's really actually quite a cramped cockpit when you get in there. I'm somewhat of a taller person, so I think it's <laughs> I think it's exacerbated for me. But even for someone of smaller stature, this was fairly state of the art for the 1930s. But even so, thinking about being in the air for just hours and hours at a time in this kind of aircraft, it was not a you know an, a pleasant experience. It was definitely a challenge. I think it gives you an appreciation of just what kind of people these these early aviation pioneers were. You can read about them, you can learn about them, but if you can actually see some tangible evidence of what they had to experience, it does give you a new appreciation for what they did. Now, another uh, female associated with flight and your museum is the actress Maureen O'Hara, and she is connected to the Excambian Flying Boat, and uh, I won't say anything more. I'm just going to hand it over to you and tell us that story. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a story. The Excambian flying boat manufactured by Sikorsky. It was one of three VS-44 Alphas built, and it is the only one that survives to this day. It was built in the late 30s as part of a uh, bid for a Navy contract. Sikorsky did not end up winning the contract, but uh, eventually when the war broke out a few years later, all three of his flying boats were impressed into service. Post-war, the two surviving VS-44s were put into civilian service and eventually found itself uh, owned by Antilles Airboats, which was led by Charles Blair. Blair was the test pilot for Sikorsky back in the 30s. When he passed away, his wife, Maureen O'Hara, really you know, had no need for this aircraft. 
she was persuaded to donate the aircraft to the National Naval Aviation Museum in Pensacola, Florida. And Pensacola did not have the space or resources to undertake a restoration of that size. So we were able to step in, bring the VS-44 north to Connecticut, specifically to Stratford, where it underwent a full restoration. The really interesting thing is that the restoration took place, you know, just about a thousand yards from where the aircraft was originally built in the 1930s. So it's about as close to a full circle story as you can get. And then once the restoration was complete, it was brought here to the museum. The finishing touches, so to speak, were done here at the museum once the aircraft was moved inside. And then when it was put on display and sort of rededicated, uh, Maureen O'Hara was able to come here and be a part of the, the rededication. Now, I'm going to date myself, and no story about the museum would be complete without this side of it. But in 1979, uh, I was a reporter, and I covered the F-4 tornado that went through uh, about four miles of Connecticut, but it just made a direct hit on the museum. And it's still, I'm sure, to those people who truly understand the value of those antique aircraft that got destroyed, I'm sure it still brings some tears to their eyes to look at the damage that that tornado did. And yet you look at the museum today, it's bigger, it's better, the people bounce back. Just tell us that story. It's one of the most incredible stories I think we have, because there's really two parts to this story, right? There's the destruction that the tornado brought but there's also the recovery, the fact that we were able to pull ourselves back from the brink. The tornado itself was really a, a freak occurrence, right? Tornadoes are not unheard of in Connecticut. There have been, you know, a, around 100 since the beginning of recorded history here in Connecticut. But the fact that this one was so severe, there's, you know, really only been three in Connecticut's history that have been that severe. And the fact that it occurred in October, which is not, you know, typical tornado weather, really just from a meteorological perspective, this was a really unique weather event. And then couple that with the fact that this tornado did, as you said, really give the museum a direct hit. You can't really get much worse luck than that. The tornado itself was really only on the ground for around eight minutes. It destroyed a good part of Pequannock, Windsor Locks, the Air Museum. It unfortunately killed three people. And there are a few aircraft in the collection today that are tornado survivors. The other really tangible legacy is our campus now as it sits. We moved to a 56-acre site that had nothing on it, no utilities, no buildings. We built our first hangar and opened it to the public exactly two years to the day after the tornado hit. That in and of itself was a huge achievement. But then beyond that, we've been able to expand our campus from one building to six and really build out our facility to really a world-class aircraft collection that is fairly well known in the aviation community. And we're going to end it on that note. It's a substantial understatement, especially after you've seen this truly remarkable museum in Windsor Locks.
wraps up this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path. I cannot stress enough how remarkable the exhibits are at the New England Air Museum located adjacent to Bradley International Airport in Windsor Locks. It's a complete flying experience. You'll love it. I want to thank my guest for this episode, Nick Hurley, the curator of the New England Air Museum. And if you'd like this show, I want to remind you to follow the podcast wherever you get your podcasts so you'll be notified when the next episode is launched. And please tell your family, your friends, your colleagues all about Amazing Tales. And if you want to be added to my newsletter, just drop me an email at amazingtalesct at gmail.com. Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and please stay healthy. (laughs) 